John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jackie. All right, guys, we are continuing uh, this week in our sermon series through the book of John. Uh, and as you've probably heard before, if you've been with us, that John is what we call a gospel. A gospel is a book in the Bible that records the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. There is four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So our passage starts in verse 22 by saying, after this. That signals that we're supposed to look at the previous section, which is a conversation that Jesus had with a man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus. This conversation we studied happened somewhere in Jerusalem, um, and now Jesus went from Jerusalem after the conversation with Nicodemus to what uh, verse 22 says, a Judean countryside. More specifically, to a place called Aon, near Salim, it says in verse 23. And this place happens to be also where John the Baptist was baptizing. Jesus chose to baptize near where John the Baptist was baptizing, simply, verse 23 says, for logistical reasons, because water was plentiful there. And then we see that people started to come to Jesus and be baptized by Jesus and not to John the Baptist. And it is here that we find the conflict of our plot, where John the Baptist's disciples came to John and expressed their jealousy. To who? Their jealousy of Jesus, of all people. And this conflict prompted a conversation that addresses some very valuable things and unbelievably relevant to us. God, Jesus, through this conversation, is revealing to us the realities of joy, where it comes from, why it's so hard to grasp, why John the Baptist was able to say that his joy was complete. What does that mean? How do we get there? And God's word is always valuable. It's always relevant. But this particular passage perhaps is especially valuable and relevant to us today. The city has been through a whirlwind. Not only the recent events in politics, but I'm sure you guys are aware of the recent bombings that happened. Not only Jakarta, but the world also seems to be going through a whirlwind. Manchester, Philippines, and here we are listening to a sermon on joy. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, give us the mercy, and as verse 27 says, the power to receive what you have to say to us today from your word. And if there be anything this morning that is not in line with your word and your scripture from me, may it wither and die. 
that only you and your word may dwell securely and give life to your people. Amen. Three things I want to point out from our passage. One, the limited power of information. Two, the denial of the creature. And three, the trustworthy creator. Three things in light of our pursuit of joy that I want to point out. The limited power of information, the denial of the creature, and the trustworthy creator. Let's start with our first point. The limited power of information. So let's go back to the introduction, talk about the setting, what's going on. Jesus is baptizing near John the Baptist. And now we get to verse 25, where it says, A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know anything about this Jew. I don't really know why he's there. There's no other information about him. But they're talking with a random, unidentified Jew. About what? About purification. And somehow their conversation about purification connected with Jesus' baptism. And they pinned Jesus' baptism against John the Baptist's baptism. They made it kind of like a competition. Verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. First notice, these people address John the Baptist as rabbi. That clearly identifies that they do uh, group themselves under John the Baptist's camp and they show respect and hold John the Baptist to a very high regard, perhaps a little bit too high. And they're upset that John the Baptist's followers, people that who could have come to their camp, left their camp and instead went to Jesus, or at least people who had the potential to join their camp uh, left to join Jesus. Now, we might think at this point, why did they do that? Okay, well, one reason could be perhaps that it was a lack of information. Perhaps they just didn't know who John the Baptist was. Perhaps they thought John the Baptist was the Christ, was the Messiah. But then you read John the Baptist's response in verse 28. They knew exactly who John the Baptist was. They had all the information necessary to know who he was. Look, look at it, John the Baptist's response. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John the Baptist, referring to his own words that's recorded in chapter 1, verses 23, when he told his disciples, I'm the voice of one making straight the way of the Lord. I'm not the Christ. I'm here to give glory to Christ. You know this. You have this head information. Okay, so they knew John the Baptist's identity. Perhaps they didn't know Jesus' identity. Maybe they thought the Christ was somebody else. The Christ wasn't this Jesus that's baptizing. Maybe that's the problem. But then you read again the words of John the Baptist, his disciples, in verse 26. They themselves confessed that they knew Jesus, this guy baptizing, is the Christ. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. To who, he's the guy to whom you bore witness. They knew this Jesus baptizing was the Christ. They had all the information necessary. They knew who John the Baptist was. They knew who Jesus was. They knew John the Baptist's purpose is to give glory to Jesus whom he bore witness to. So it's rather bizarre, almost comical, that John the Baptist's disciples, who had all the information necessary to be jealous that Jesus is getting the glory instead of John the Baptist. It's very interesting. They had all the information. Logically, they should be able to put two and two together and say, it is no problem 
that these people are going to him. It's actually good. But instead, that connection didn't happen. Why? Why were they unwilling to see these people go to Jesus instead of John the Baptist? But yet, John the Baptist, at the end of our passage, says, this gave him joy. What's the disconnect? Why did John the Baptist have joy, and why did his disciples not have joy and was resentful of this situation? John the Baptist and his disciples, same situation, had the same head information. One responded with joy, one responded without joy, with jealousy, with discontentment, with dissension. Why is that? Here I believe we see our erroneous assumption that the secret to having more joy is having more information. We think the secret to having more joy is having more information. Now, information is good. It's very good. The correct biblical answers are priceless. Seek them more than gold, the Bible says. Look for them. But is it not also true that the amount of information we have about the topic of joy, as biblical as they may be, very rarely translates to our actual experience of having joy? Is that true? We know a lot of information. There's a lot of good books, good Christian books written about joy. Books that personally have rocked my Christian walk in a good way. A popular one that some of you might know is Christian Hedonism, Desiring God by John Piper. It's a great book. Pick it up if you haven't read it. Finish it if you're halfway through it. It explains about how Christianity and hedonism is often pinned against each other, hedonism defined as the seeking of pleasure, the seeking of joy. Christianity is not. Christianity is the seeking of God. We're not supposed to seek pleasure. And John, the, John, Piper, John the Piper, John Piper said, um, <laughs> John the Baptist, John Piper. Um, John, John Piper, Dr. Piper said, you don't pin these two things with each other. Christianity is not pinned against hedonism. Christian a Christian is hedonistic. It's just that we find our pleasure and our joy, not in the world, but in God. And then he come up with this amazing statement that said, God is most glorified when we are most pleasurable in him, where we are more satisfied in him, when we find most joy in him. And he gives this analogy about a waterfall, and you stand under a waterfall, and you open your mouth, and you drink of the water. And by enjoying that waterfall, you're giving glory to the waterfall. And then, ooh, and then he redefined, he restated the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And he said, it says, uh, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper says, no. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And you're just, wow. Christian joy, Christian, all this really good information, satisfied in God, Christian hedonism, yes. And Tim Keller's book, Idols of the Heart, a very excellent, unintimidating book about idolatry and how we tend to worship other things but God. And he explains the difference between surface idols and deep idols, money, career, girlfriend, boyfriend, all these things, they're idols, but they're surface idols. Really, you're just using them to fulfill a deeper idol, such as power, acceptance, control, love. And, and you see the difference like, oh, yes, that's, my problem isn't that I want um, money too much. My problem is I want security. And I rely on money to fulfill that deeper longing. And all this information, it's good. And if you haven't read any of these books, I'm sure you've heard sermons about it. I'm sure you've heard quotes about it, about joy. There's a God-shaped hole in our hearts. I'm sure you've heard that statement. You've heard all these things about material things that doesn't give us joy. Only Christ can. Most likely, you, you know all this. But why is it 
that the level of head knowledge we have about joy almost is never equal to the actual joy we experience in our daily lives. I'm not saying they're not valuable. They're very valuable. But information has its limits. This is what John the Baptist's disciples experienced. They had all the information. They know what John the Baptist was meant to do. They know who the Christ is. They know that people leaving here, going there is a good thing. But they weren't joyful. Can you relate with that? I can. Why do you think that's the case? If just having more information is not the ultimate solution, what is the solution then? Brings us to our second point, the denial of the creature. So, John the Baptist and his disciples, both presented with the same situation, both had the same information about the situation, but yet one responded with dissension and discontentment, and the other said it made his joy complete. What's the difference between the two? If it's not information, then what is it? Let's move on to the text. Verse 27 and 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And here we find the answer of why John the Baptist's response was different than his disciples. It is not because John the Baptist had more information, but because, I would say, John the Baptist has embraced what we will call today the creator-creature distinction. John the Baptist has embraced the creator-creature distinction. What does it mean to embrace the creator-creature distinction? A few things. First, it's by accepting the fact that our possessions do not belong to us. Let's look at verse 27. Beautiful verse, especially in the Greek. Most of the time, I don't like talking about the Greek in the sermons because I think it can be distracting more than it is helpful. But I think for this particular verse, it actually can be helpful. It packs so much meaning, and it's it's said so well. In, In the ESV... Verse 27 says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The first three words, a person cannot. In the original Greek, it is o dunatai anthropos. O dunatai anthropos. O literally means not or no. Okay. No what? No dunatai. Dunatai comes from the root word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It means power. No power. A person cannot. O dunatai. No power to do what? To receive anything, to own anything, unless it's given by God. Who has no power to receive anything unless it's given by God? O dunatai anthropos. Anthropos is where we get the word anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man, study of mankind. The Greek is anthropos. O dunamis anthropos to receive anything unless it is given to him by God. A person cannot. No power do humans have to receive anything. This was John the Baptist's first explanation to his disciples. So John the Baptist's joy was found upon him embracing the fact that anything he had was a gift from the Father. John the Baptist has embraced the reality of his anthroposness, his creatureliness, that he's not God. He's not the creator. 
meaning that none of this stuff ultimately belonged to him. What do you mean, some of us might say. I, I worked hard for my stuff. I've put a lot of effort and thought and energy and time and money into it. What do you mean I didn't earn it? Well, I'm not trying to minimize your hard work. Not at all. That's great. Not, that's, that's very honorable to work hard and, 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 and make living in that way and, and earn stuff in that way. But, but if you think about it, there's many factors that first you must have that are often taken for granted in order to even work hard. Who gave us a functioning brain? Did we work hard to be born with a functioning brain? No. Who, who gave us the ability to speak? or to understand things, or to move, or to hear? Or who instilled in us the value of hard work? Most likely, our families did. Most of us here come from families that value education, can afford giving their kids education. Did we work hard to be born into these families that taught us these values? No. Now, I'm not saying those who don't have fully functioning cognitive capacities, I'm not saying those who aren't born into decent families can't be successful or can't earn things, no. Just, I'm just making a point. There are a lot of factors in play that was given to us, even in the ability to work hard. But on top of that, if you believe in the biblical God, the sovereign God, you believe that all your hard work is, and all the results of it is under his sovereign control. And it's either he gave it to you or allowed you to have it. Either way, he's in control. See, there's a lot of factors in play, meaning that everything we have is not ultimately ours, but he gave it to us and allowed us to have it. That's the difference between John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist saw these people leaving them, or, or the potential people who could come to them, go to Jesus, and they say, John, aren't you upset? Your followers left you. John the Baptist responds, whose followers? Mine? They were never mine to begin with. It's not mine. The cause of his disciples of dissension in this time as they thought these people belonged to John. Just like how we often feel, feel or believe that our possessions belong to us. And until a creature truly believes that what they have belongs to the creator, their joy will always be enslaved by it. Until a creature truly believes that what they have belongs to the creator, their joy will always be enslaved by it. So first, embracing the creator-creature distinction is to realize that he has the authority and the right to take and give as he pleases. Whatever it might be. Money, possessions, time, pachar. And even things dearer to our hearts that I, as a husband and a father, dare not mention. See, it's one thing for me to be spitting out all this information to you. It's one thing for you to be hearing it from me. But when we walk us out of those doors, it's a whole different story. So if our possessions are not ultimately ours to use for our own agenda, according to our own preferences, within a time frame of our own will, what is it for then? The second thing that the creator-creature distinction calls us to embrace is the fact that all things are to be used to point to the kingdom of God, and the glory of God. Where do we see this? Verse 29. And how John the Baptist describes himself as the friend of the groom. Now, 
in verse 1, you see this, this, this wedding analogy, and he said, I am the friend of the groom. That's what he said. Now, being a friend of the groom does just mean like a buddy. Back then, the friend of a groom is, is an official role. It's more almost like today we call a best man, a best man in a wedding. But back then, the responsibilities of a best man was much more than what we have today. Uh, the, the, the official name for it is a shosbin. That, that's the, the, the best man back then. It's called a shosbin. And they're responsible to prepare wedding details, food, decorations, whatever the bride needs to get ready, make sure her dress is there, whatever jewelry she needs is, is there. And another big responsibility of the shosbin, the friend of the groom, is very interesting. It's what's called the bridal journey. The bridal journey is a tradition that after the wedding, uh, uh, the shosbin, the, 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 um, the friend of the groom, would, would organize a party, a party that would follow the bride all the way from her parents' house to her new home. And people would cheer her on, people would dan be dancing, singing, throwing whatever the equivalent of confettis are. Uh, and, and the whole way, as a bride walks to the new house, it's the responsibility of the shopsman to make sure this party happens well and festively to celebrate the bride and shower her with songs and jubilee until she reaches her new home. Now, for John the Baptist to embrace his role as a creature is to believe, one, that all he has does not belong to him but has been given to him for the glory of God so that the, the, the best man can point to the groom. Now, as we talked about many times before, who does the Bible teach us the ultimate groom is? Who does the book of John tell us the ultimate groom is? Jesus Christ. Who, is the, who does the Bible say the bride is? The church. Big C Church. All those who would receive him as Lord and Savior. Let's read a few verses just to convince us furthermore. Matthew 22, 1-2. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. In Revelation 19, you see... The son waiting for his bride, which is the church, clothed in righteousness without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25, 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with words, so that he might present the church, his wife, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, she might be holy and without blemish. This is what John the Baptist describes his role as creature is, to not presume ultimate ownership over anything he owns on earth and to give his life and all his stuff to the kingdom of God and the glory of God by building up his church. John the Baptist's disciples were worried about losing followers they thought they owned that could contribute to the building up of John's kingdom. The Baptist, rather, embraced the creature or the creator-creature distinction, lived his life in the way that man, creature, anthropos, was designed to live by not claiming any of his possessions to be his own, but given by God to build up God's people, his church on earth, until the church, which is his bride, will reach their new home. This was the apostle's Paul's desire as well to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11.2, says Paul saying, I'm jealous for you, church, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure version to him. And remember, the church here isn't referring to one church in particular, but the big C church, all of those who 
are in Christ or will receive Christ in the future, the collective of those who are his. So it doesn't mean we're called to be just inner-focused all the time and self-centered all the time. No, it means we're called to, yes, minister and disciple to those in the church now, but also give what we have to the gospel being spread out to those who will receive him in the future, the big C church. John the Baptist's disciples wanted to make much of John. This is why they lacked joy. Because they were not living out the original design they were created to live as a creature, as an anthropos, who gives all he has to the Lord and assumes none of it as his own. John, John Lapse rebukes them and says that to do this is like a best man in a wedding who's upset because all the flowers and all the food and all the decorations are not meant for him, but is meant for the groom. It's silly. No best man would ever be upset at that. They shouldn't. It's not about him. It's about the groom. And we will never find this everlasting joy that John the Baptist talks about. No matter how many books we read, no matter how many good biblical things we understand, until we embrace this creator-creature distinction, Anthropos cannot find joy. Lasting joy that is truly fulfilled by God, this is why it's so hard. It's so difficult to, to grasp this joy, to embrace this creator-creature distinction because to embrace the fact that he is creator, to embrace the fact that he owns all our stuff, to embrace the fact that he has control over it and that we're supposed to joyfully give back to him requires us to have one thing that's very hard to have. We'll get to that in our third point. We can't get there by reading a book. Then what do we need to embrace this creator-creature distinction. There's one huge missing piece we haven't talked about. The distinction um, um, that allows John the Baptist to react to the situation in a different way than his disciples did. And when we understand this missing piece, we'll understand two things. One, um, we'll understand how to embrace the creator-creature distinction. But two, it'll protect us from falling into the misunderstanding that Christians aren't allowed to be sad. When we get this thing, we'll understand two things. One, how to actually, what we need to embrace this creator-creature distinction. But two, we'll also see the misunderstanding that when I say this, I don't mean that we're not allowed to be sad. We're actually called to be sad when, we are, when sad things happen. We'll, we'll get to that. They'll, 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 they'll both connect, uh, I promise, in the third point. All right. So, last point. Tr uh, uh, the trustworthy creator. Okay, let me first summarize what we've talked about, then I'll, I'll get to it. So let, let's first summarize. Joy, though the head knowledge does play a role in giving us good biblical information, how to pursue joy, where joy is found and not found, it has its limits. It alone does not have the power to give creature this joy John's talking about. The only way creatures to have true joy is when the creature embraces the creator-creature distinction which is to realize that our stuff isn't ours and that we've not earned it by our own sheer will and therefore have no right to keep it according to our own personal wisdom, preference, and timing. But all of it was been given by the Creator to use in accordance to His will for His glory, although His eternal sovereign will is not always comprehensible by finite beings like us. It is His to use for His own will, although sometimes his will is not fully comprehended by us. And to be able to embrace this, to be able to live like this, to find joy in embracing this creator-creature distinction, um, 
takes one thing that if you don't have, you'll never, you'll never find it. To embrace the creator-creature distinction, the thing that we must have is an unbelievable amount of trust. I mean unbelievable, almost to the point of ridiculousness. That much trust. Only then, only then can you embrace this creator-creature distinction. There's no way we'll embrace it if we don't trust him. Because if, if some things he could just take away, things that sometimes we value more than our very lives. If he has the right to take that away, if he can do whatever he pleases with it, and we're called to let go of them and use it to point to the groom, use it to glorify him and his kingdom and build up his church. Unless we trust him, unless we trust his motives, we will never do that. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to accept this. That's why it's so hard to get. Now, now, how can man trust, how can creature trust his creator to that extent? How does John the Baptist do it? Well, we see it in John the Baptist's explanations to his disciples. Something easily missed in the wedding banquet analogy that we talked about earlier. John the Baptist said that my primary role was what? The best man, the shasbin. That's who I am in this wedding analogy, right? But... That's not his only role. That's not even his primary role, I would say. What is John the Baptist's role in this wedding analogy? He is first and foremost the bride. In fact, one cannot be a good shasbin, we cannot be a, a good best man to the groom, and trust the creator in such a way, and embrace this creator-creature distinction, unless we first and foremost realize that we are the bride. Here's what I mean. Who is the bride again? All who has received Christ, the big C church, and all who will receive Christ, in which John the Baptist is a part of. John the Baptist realizes he too is a sinner. He too has been saved by the fact that his creator came down and died for him on the cross. He too is a part of this church that will be presented without wrinkle, without spot, without blemish, because Jesus has paid all of our sins on the cross, and he's died for that which we deserve. Now, this makes John the Baptist what? The bride, a part of the big C church through his blood. And how does realizing that he's a part of the bride, how does realizing that we are a part of the bride make us good shawsbins? Because now we can trust him. That although we might not know the reason of why the Lord gives and takes away, though we might not know the reason of why he allows sufferings and bombings and terrors to happen, through the cross, we know what the reason isn't. And it isn't because the Creator doesn't love us. We might not know why, but the cross tells us why it isn't. If the gospel is true, if you claim to believe and embrace this cross, it is not because He doesn't love you. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8. Listen to the boldness behind what he's saying. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The point here is not that God's going to give us everything we pray for, but he's trying to make a point. Look at what he gave you. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. Look at the cross. 
if he doesn't give you something, if he takes away something, it's not because he's stingy. Look. It's not because he doesn't care. Look. It's not because he doesn't love you. Look at the cross. We may not know the reason why, but the cross tells us why it isn't. And it's not because he doesn't love us. Trust me, the Creator says on the cross. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other type of convincing that can give the creature such tremendous amounts of joy that is required to embrace this Creator-Creature distinction. Unless we first realize this, we'll never trust Him and His motives for us. This is what makes us hold, not hold on to our stuff too tightly, but trust in the Lord that through whatever circumstances, as things come and go according to eternal wise counsel of His sovereign will, although I don't know why, I know why it's not. Now let me just say this too. As we end, it's a bit of a side note, but I think it's appropriate and this week specifically calls for it. Um, three heartbreaking incidents happen, as I've mentioned, around the globe. And one of them occurred in the city, Jakarta, 40 minutes from here. Being a good shasbin, trusting God throughout all of this, it doesn't mean that we can't be upset or sad about it. It actually means that we must be. This is, this is why. Because when we're upset and sad about broken things, it helps us do our jobs as shasbins better. When we're sad, when we mourn and are angered over these things, we're appointing people to Christ, which is what the Shasman is called to do. How? How does us being sad and how does us mourning about these sad events help us point people to Christ? See, when something bad occurs and we respond with sadness, we respond with grief because that's what it calls for, we're saying things shouldn't be this way. That, that's what we're saying. Things shouldn't be this way. When we say sh things shouldn't be this way, what we're indirectly saying is there is an unmet standard of how things should be. Something bad happens, we get sad. What we're communicating by that sadness is this is not how, how the world's supposed to be. What we say when we say that is that there's an unmet standard of how the world is meant to be. Now, where did we get that standard from? Here is where our sadness can point to another reality to a creator, to a God, because if there is no God, if there's no objective standard of good and evil, if all this happened by chance, if the existence of man, if the existence of anthropos is merely a result of survival of the fittest, the strong eating the weak, natural selection, then we have no logical ground to be sad for these recent bombings. We cannot say it's objectively wrong. That's just evolution taking place. That's a process of elimination. That's survival of the fittest. That's perfectly natural. This is where the non-theists have a difficulty explaining the sad sadness and the sense of anger we all feel because everyone knows that's wrong. Everyone is saying that's not how things should be. Christian, non-Christian, theist, non-theist. Everyone's saying there is a standard, an unmet standard of how things should be. Where did that come from? If things are just natural selection, survival of the fittest. To this, our Bible gives us the answer in Romans chapter 2. It is because the existence of good and evil, of an ultimate right and wrong, has been written by the Creator to all of His creatures' hearts. 
whether they're Christians or not. It's all in our hearts. We all feel it. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, even though they don't believe in this law, this God. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. When we're sad about something, we're pointing people to a world where being good shosbins, that God, a standard of good and evil, does exist. And this forces people to dig deep and ask the question they suppress, why am I sad? Why am I angry right now? If it's all just survival of the fittest, why am I not okay with this? Because this should be perfectly natural. And hopefully this question will point them to the creator, which is what a shosbin does. You see. So to be a good shosbin and trust the Lord with all our possessions and be joyful however he decides to give and take away because we trust him so much does not mean that we're not allowed to be sad. But sometimes it requires us to be sad. But remember, we're not only shosbins, we're also the bride. Stay with me. And as brides, our type of mourning, our type of sadness is different than the world's. We are called in 1 Thessalonians 4 to mourn as those who have hope. To mourn and be sad as those who know He is coming. And that victory has been paid for by the cross. And now I can mourn and be sad and point people to the unmet standards. But yet at the same time, mourn with hope. Because we have a hope anchored upon Christ. And when we have the power to embrace this creator-creature distinction, and be shosbins who trust in the Lord as things come and go. We're going to be able to mourn over tragedies and point people to the Creator. And also as His bride, we're going to be able to mourn with hope as those who have been given the assurance of one day reaching home. This is the difference between John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist's disciples refused to embrace this Creator-Creature distinction. But John the Baptist embraced it because he saw the cross and he trusted his Creator who loved him and died for him. This made him able to sit in whatever sorrow life presents him, but neither minimize the sadness and the mourning that sometimes it calls for, but at the same time be joyful through it all because he is going home. A pastor once put it very well. Jesus sat in the midst of joy, sipping the coming sorrow, which is the cross, so that we can sit in the midst of sorrow and sip the coming joy. Jesus sat in the midst of joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that we can sit in the midst of sorrow and sip the coming joy. John the Baptist's joy comes from embracing the fact that his possessions do not belong to him. His fate, which has been solidified on the cross, can be fully entrusted to his creator and groom who died for him. That whatever sorrow befalls him, he knows that through the cross, it's not because his creator doesn't love him and thus is able to both gain or experience loss, to have sorrow and pain joyfully, and testify the cross, his creator, the gospel, through it all. This is what man, this is what anthropos can experience when they embrace the creator-creature distinction. This is where joy comes from. This is the peace, Paul says, that is beyond understanding. 
This is why John the Baptist said in verse 31, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's the creator. I'm the creature. This is what I'm made to live for. This is what Adam and Eve was made to live for. And if I continue rejecting that design, joy will come at spurts at a moment at best. These aren't the words of a monk who has no wants. He must increase, but I must decrease. These are the words of a creature who's found the utmost joy in finally realizing who he's designed to be and what his role is as the creator's, man, as, as, as the creator's best man and as the creator's bride. And I pray that the Lord may have mercy on us to increasingly embrace this creator-creature distinction. It's a lifelong journey. There's no magic bullet. There's no answer. You're not going to walk out of the sermon more joyful in, in a way that unless the Lord gives you that, good on you. But generally speaking, you're not going to walk out of this with this joy that John the Baptist is talking about. But if we continue to remember the truths of the Bible, the truths been presented to us in this passage, I pray whatever hills or valleys await for us beyond these doors, remember that in Christ, you are on your way home. And along the way, be good shawsbins to him, to your groom who gave his life for you so that you may arrive safely there. Let's pray. Father, what a frustrating truth almost it is to hear because it seems so far from us. It seems so unreachable, so intangible. It feels like I will never get there to where John the Baptist was. But Father, John himself said these words while he was alive on earth. He said these words while he was this side of eternity. So, Father, it is possible, apparently. And we beg you that you would make the reality of the gospel brighter in our hearts, in our minds, that we can grow in our trust of your motives, of who you are, that whatever happens, we don't know why, maybe, because you are eternal, you are infinite, we are finite, we have limits. But although we don't know the why, we can hold fast upon the cross, upon the gospel, why it isn't. It isn't because you don't love us. And let this trust give us the power to embrace you as creator and ourselves as creature and give to you, to our groom, as his best man and as his bride, that which is rightly his. Glory, power, honor, majesty, fame. You must increase, but we must decrease. Only in this embrace can creature, can man find true joy. I beg you for more mercy that we would continue to believe and trust in you in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.